0: Coming up next on Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, SSDs are failing. AMD's awesome Lano graphics, seated backup, RAM upgrades, and the threats? Well, you are going to find out next on Twitch. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust. This, this is Twitch. Twit.
0: Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by CashFly at dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 118, recorded May 5th, 2011. Trigate makes everything better.
1: This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit.
0: Welcome to Twitch This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton, joined as always by the man, the myth, the traveling legend. Not benchmarking, sunbathing. Is your sunscreen on, Mr. Shrout?
1: Um, well it's nighttime now but it was earlier although <laughs> i think if you look closely on the video on my forehead there was a spot that didn't have any sunscreen unfortunately i can um, see that yeah sun. doing well out, out out of town enjoying the sun um last night at my home i was told that there was a frost warning so all of my friends that are not on this trip with us were uh cursing but so you're I, in st john's down in the islands again I am. I'm in St. John, um, which is a U.S. Virgin Island. I've never been here before. It's literally kind of empty. I go to weddings um, in, in places of-
0: like St. Louis and, um, <laughs> you know, rural Vermont in January. Right. You're in St. John. You got to tell
1: your friends to step
0: up, well, right? I tell my family to step up. <laughs> so. <laughs> We should probably get straight into the big news this week. AMD wept. Why? Uh, Because out of nowhere, not quite out of nowhere, but certainly, uh, uh, you know, big announcement, Intel 3D, you know, CPUs. And everybody's like, oh, new three-dimensional. Then you get past the title and you go into it. And it's actually a radical change in the way Uh, Chips are architected. Traditionally, basically, since the 1950s, transistors are flat, they're two-dimensional, they sit on the surface Mm -hmm. of the silicon substrate. And jump in and, and correct my language at any point. And Intel's like, we've developed a 3D transistor, and it's going to allow us to move electricity, more power, more efficiently, with less leakage. And at this point, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, we were talking about it before we started. Like, I'm envisioning, like, you know, instead of flat silicon, these little like inch-high cubes, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. how they're going to be cooled. And and it actually, it turns out, it's actually it's a radical change in how transistors are designed, almost. It's it's almost like it's if they've put three gates, tri gates, into a single transistor to allow them better control over the electrical flow. And yeah, it's kind so, of funny. I mean, it's like it's oh, that's all they did. And then we'll talk about the performance and the power savings in a minute. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, anybody that that's, you know, a math major, you know, that there's no such thing as an actual two D object to begin with anyway, right? You know, unless right. you in geometry, you have that theoretical straight, you know, point is only one dimension type of thing. So basically it's what they've done is they've flat taken lens. a transistor and uh, made it taller. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the result of that is, is they have created more surface area for the gate of the transistor. And the gate is responsible for controlling how much electric goes through and how quickly the electric stops. The two very, very important um, aspects of a transistor. And by adding more surface area to that, it has allowed them to gain more control over that electric in theory to allow more current to flow when it's on less current to flow when it's off and have quicker capability to turn that on and off easily. Now, this is all in conjunction with a move from a 32 nanometer transistor to a 22 nanometer transistor, I'm sorry, to a 22 nanometer transistor, which is their next step, you know, product shipping late in 2012, probably, type of of product release schedule. And, you know, you're going to AMD is also moving to 22 nanometers. Global Foundries is mm-hmm. moving to 22 nanometers, but they are using standard planar 2D transistors, if we're going to use that terminology on things now. Uh, and that's what Intel had been planning on doing, right? They were researching that. I'm sure if you if, if you ask the people at Intel, they would tell you that they were looking at planar, they were looking at these Trigate, these 3D transistors. And for their technology, they weren't able to get the performance improvements going from 32 to 22 with a, with a flat transistors, So they have developed a way to do this in three dimensions. And, and this surface area has done some amazing things. If you look at some of the numbers that Intel's quoting in terms of performance improvements, not like benchmark performance improvements, um, mm-hmm. but what actual advantages you get out of it
0: well it's funny right because you know 23 nanometers the process the next drop down is 14 nanometers and mm-hmm. um somewhere around 90 nanometers which is i want to say around 2003 2004 current leakage mm-hmm. became a severe issue. So the idea that the, right. the traces on the surface of the chip are so small, they're basically radiating electricity. You know, how small can we get them? How close can we get to together? Do we have to move to optical computing? Um, and right. this is this is kind of a you know, because everybody's like Moore's law. We love Moore's law. We got to keep that Moore's law going. We got to keep, you know, um, basically And Moore's law is all about putting more transistors on the chip uh, as quickly as possible. Right. And you know, so by changing how the changing the process they were using in the construction, they they, they were able to get it down to thirty-two nanometers. And they're yeah, they were going to push and shove and scrape. They were going to get it to twenty-two nanometers. But this is a fascinating level. You know, the you know, the like one of the press releases from Intel is you know six, You know, basically look at a period at the end of a sentence on a web page, and they're going to stuff six million transistors in that period. You know, this is you know you can geek out, you can get your you know numbers oh, of angels yeah. you know dancing on a pin, but they're basically saying, you know for equivalent performance levels, a fifty percent reduction in power um, because they can clamp down voltage so much better in this in this particular construction. And I think right. we've got a picture in the in the uh, uh, we've got a picture in the uh, linked in the uh, show notes if you guys want to pull that up on the tricaster. I just dropped in there. Um, but it's a really interesting idea is that by, uh, by unless of course Google has failed me once again, um, or Image Shack has failed once again. Um, but the uh, the it, uh, it, the construction is really fascinating to look at.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it's it's really cool to look at. Um, you know, and, and like I was saying, that surface area allows us to just have more control. You know, and all this kind of like you're saying results in these big percentage of improvements in certain areas. If we look at um, Performance per volt, right? right? How much how much voltage uh, leakage do you get at certain voltages and that type of thing? And you're seeing, you know, big improvements of you know 75 to 80 percent of the operating voltage of the 32 nanometer transistors that they're using today on the Sandy Bridge parts. So mm-hmm. that means in the next generation parts, whether or not we're talking about uh, Ivy Bridge, which is the desktop notebook par or upcoming Atom processors, that types of thing, you're going to be able to run at the same performance at, in theory, you know, 75% of the operating power. So while this is going to be good news for the desktop and in performance, if you look at it from a mobile standpoint, you look at it from battery life on things right. like your laptop, if you look at it for Intel's push into cell phone markets, they have... Mm -hmm. been struggling on this for so long, right? Right. Morristown platforms come out. Nobody wants to use it. It's big. (laughs) It's bulky compared to what ARM's processors can do. Even NVIDIA or uh,
0: NVIDIA, excuse me, like AMD is having success Mm -hmm. with the Tegra 2 and the smaller chipsets. No, you're right. Or the smaller tablets, which has to be, uh, yeah, sorry, NVIDIA with the Tegra 2, which has to be driving Intel absolutely crazy because they can't beat ARM. All of a sudden, NVIDIA has got another strong part that they can build their business around. And... Mm-hmm. It's funny because one of the things Intel's been pushing in their in their press briefings for the last couple of years is, you know, a few years ago it was it's not about megahertz; it's about the amount of work done per clock cycle. You know, because they basically wanted people to stop looking at faster clock numbers because at some point sure. it's, it's it's pointless, right? And a couple of years ago they started up. It's it's no longer about the amount of work we're doing. Well, if, you know, of course we're going to build the fastest processors in the planet, but they always you know, power became the big issue because you know five mm-hmm. years ago people were already seeing the writing on the wall. That, you know, low power consumption is going to be the big deal moving you know forward in the 21st century. And it's so funny to look at this to be like, wow, this is a radical change um, in chip architecture. And on the other hand, they still got to build a part that, that, you know, HTC or Apple, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're desperate for Apple's business, are, are, are willing to actually buy Sure. And it's 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 funny to look at it like Ivy Bridge is gonna be really interesting next year. But it's also it's it's a reminder that the, the big power consumer in a lot of ways really isn't the chip inside of portable de, portable devices. Anything with like bigger than a, a screen that's a couple inches, the biggest consumer of power is gonna be like a 4G modem, a GPS, or (laughs) the screen. And the screen is the one where, you know, when I'm thinking about like, when I want my like three day notebook, I wanna be able to use a computer for three days straight until they have to check me into the hospital from lack of like fluids and sleep. But in order to make that happen, you know, you either are are gonna have to strap a car battery to your existing notebook, or they're gonna have to figure out a way to Mm -hmm. make um, power consumption on uh, LED flat panels drop precipitously and that's that's an interesting challenge
1: one Uh, one of the things that that you know if we talk about for for this particular market and our consumer here you know mm -hmm. in that in the notebook and below size the differences are huge you know they're talking about um moving from 32 nanometer planar to 22 nanometer tri-gate transistors a 30 percent improvement in gate um, switching speed and so you can you get two options here. Do you apply that to better performance or lower uh, battery level or lower power consumption rather? I'm sorry. And so obviously for the mobile front, what we'll see is a lot of people are going to say my notebook is fast enough. My, you know, tablet... Netbook does enough type of thing. you know longer battery life thirty seven percent improvements in that is going to be great. If you look at the desktop you mentioned Ivy bridge, you know eighteen percent is what they're claiming at kind of like that one volt level, which is where desktop processors stand. Now we have to wonder if in if Intel is going to apply that 18% advantage that they are getting with this transistor type towards improved frequencies. Are we gonna finally get that four gigahertz clock speed processor that has been kind of pie in the sky for a long time? Or are we gonna get, you know, current Kind of current level, Sandy Bridge performance, 18% lower voltage or lower power consumption. Those types of things. Those are all decisions that you know Intel's going to be making in next year and the in 2013 as well to see how they're going to apply the advantages that these transistors get. So, it's it's pretty cool stuff. You know, if you've never studied how transistors work, um, and just just the incred- incredible incredible size of them. And I mean, by size, obviously, I mean how, how incredibly small they are. You know, the news post that we posted on PCper.com has a video from Intel that's obviously a lot of marketing speak involved, <laughs> but they do a really good demonstration of here's, here's a human hair, here's the, the chip we just built, you know, and now we've got to go, you know, 10,000 times smaller even to go see one of these transistors type of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. They even demoed Ivy Bridge running during this press event, right? So they demoed a 22 nanometer microprocessor using the Trigate transistors. It's in production. This chip, um, they built an SRAM out of it, which is just like a memory module using 2.9 billion transistors, which is uh, a lot. That's, uh, <laughs> almost, that's almost as much as Intel's biggest, or NVIDIA's biggest GPU, which was, which was a monster. So... Um, You know, not much is changing, I guess, for consumers, except that they now... I don't think anybody really worried that we weren't going to see continued improvement in processor technology, but now you definitely don't have to worry about that. Intel's done some really amazing things here. You know, AMD and Global Foundries have some pretty good improvements with their 22 nanometer process planned as well. I don't think they're going to claim any of the kind of the wild percentages that Intel's claiming here. Um, Mm -hmm. But even Intel admitted that they think... They think their competition will be using this type of technology after 22. so at the 14 level that you mentioned before. Um, so they're going to have even more advantage for a little bit. And, um, you know, some people might wonder if Intel needed a little bit more competition to help move things along a little bit faster. It doesn't look like they're, we're going to get it this month or next year even. So, but it's, it's, it's really, really cool technology. It's going to change a, a lot of what Intel was doing for right. 2012 nvidia having a bad
0: quarter <laughs> um it basically and it's funny because the 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 line you had here in the show notes is graphic shipments rise 10 percent despite falling pc sales nvidia shares mm-hmm. drop and so it seems like the integrated gpus on uh in the chipset are getting to the point where they're dramatically impacting NVIDIA's bottom line or, or, or the GPU market in general.
1: Yeah, so this, this, this report came out from a, a research firm that that focuses on the graphics market and that kind of stuff. And what they were saying is PC sales dropped about 5% from Q4 2010 to Q1 2011. You know, that's, 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 that's bad news, right, for, for the mm-hmm. rest of the industry. But they said graphic shipments go up 10%. And I'm going to put a caveat here because... The issue with that statement is, is they're counting a GPU as um, either a discrete solution, obviously like an NVIDIA or an AMD add-in card, and also integrated graphics on Intel Sandy Bridge processors and integrated graphics on Intel or an AMD's Fusion processors. So when you've got your CPU GPU combos, that's being counted as both a processor and a GPU in terms of these. These shipment numbers. So the 10% rise Mm -hmm. could be a lot of systems, notebooks, and desktops that are shipping with both a processor that has a Sandy Bridge CPU, or a processor that has a Sandy Bridge GPU in it, and a discrete solution from NVIDIA and AMD as well. So that might be a little bit of where that 10% rise in graphics comes from. But either way, if you look at what NVIDIA has seen, is um, compared to Q1. 2010. So if we look at it year over year, their growth is down. Like they've gone from 28% to 20% market share. That's not good news.
0: <laughs> not at all.
1: Intel Intel's has gone up by like five percent. AMD's gone up like three percent. Obviously at the expense of. I guess you do your math right. Five percent is eight <laughs> percent of difference. So. Um, you know, this is kind of what we worried about. This is kind of what NVIDIA is worried about. This is why they're pushing for the ARM-based processors, the Tegra solutions, the Project Denver that they announced at CES. They knew this type of stuff was coming. They knew to expect that their market share in graphics was going to be minimized because of cheap integrated GPUs on processors. And they don't have a processor, so that's, that's the struggle for them. Um, so... What I think would have been more interesting numbers to see uh, are <clears throat> excuse me, just the discrete sales, AMD versus Nvidia, and see how the market share is going that way. This kind of clumps the Intel and AMD integrated all into the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, numbers are numbers, and they kind of lie, and they kind of tell the truth, depending on who <laughs> you're paying attention to. Speaking
0: of numbers and numbers, AMD Lano integrated graphics. Uh, Looks like HD 6550. Is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down on performance for Lano?
1: That's a thumbs up, actually. Um, you know, this is still like in the rumor mill, but they're estimating that the performance of the integrated graphics on the AMD Lano processor that will probably be out in another month or so, um, mm-hmm. getting pretty close to it, is going to be on the performance level of, of a 6550, which will put it well ahead of what Intel Sandy Bridge processor graphics can do um, which is kind of what we expected you know we we, we knew amd was going to have an advantage with all their gpu history and that kind of stuff from the ati acquisition and this will be the processor that finally is the fruit of that merger so to speak um, and they have a little diagram excuse me on the uh on our news post where they show a pie chart of okay here's a lano die here's a sandy bridge die how big of a percentage of it is x86 cores how big of a percentage of is north bridge functions like memory controller and how big of it how much of it is actually graphics and if you look at the uh, lano die you'll see that 30 to it looks like 45 percent 40 percent of the die is going to be dedicated to graphics performance Mm -hmm. whereas if you look on intel's it's closer to 20% of the die and that that difference is kind of telling you where the how AMD is able to get is going to have better performing GPU parts so this all comes down to are you playing games what are you doing with that GPU portion <laughs> um AMD's been putting a lot of money well a lot of money for for AMD at least into the program the fusion developer program where they're trying to get more and more software to take advantage of those GPU accelerated functionalities um, because that's where AMD is going to have an advantage. Their prop, their x86 cores are still going to be behind Sandy Bridge with right. um, pretty much what everybody knows. And the graphics is going to be their advantage, but gaming can only get you so far in the mainstream market. You have to show, you know, video transcoding is that key thing. And then what other stuff can you do with processor graphics know, that you can't do with just x86 cores. That's what AMD has to prove. But I think a 6550 is going to be pretty impressive. You know, you're going to start to see cannibalizing of that sub-$50 graphics card market to be pretty severe.
0: So, enough for the cheerful news. (laughs) (laughs) To bring it back up, Seagate showing off one terabyte per platter hard drives, um, which along with some stuff we're going to talk about later on about... uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if you're familiar with codinghorror.com, um, there's a website blog that was super, super, super enthusiastic about the SSD. And he's been running into severe failure rates on SSD drive. We'll talk about that after after the break. Um, but the place where SSDs, uh, outside of being, you know, more expensive per gigabyte, uh, they're obviously much smaller in capacity. I bring that up because Seagate's looking at one terabyte per platter on uh uh well traditional rotating media winchester media
1: Hmm.
0: um which i i i was looking at that article and thinking like that's kind of exciting um (laughs) especially when you're thinking about uh uh smaller drives and just long-term storage Mm -hmm. but uh 600 area density of 625 gigabytes per square inch that's awesome Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, you know, a one terabyte drive is a single platter at that point. Um, current one terabyte drives, and this is up on pcper.com. Uh, uh, I'm not sure who wrote this article because I haven't quite gotten to the end of it yet, but uh, it says current one terabyte drives are using two 500 gigabyte platters. Three terabyte drives are using either four 750 gigabyte platters um, or five 600 gigabyte platters. So now obviously my head is all a with the idea of a five terabyte hard drive, five one terabyte platters.
1: Um, you know, and <laughs> I mean, the problem with the five platter drive is uh, heat builds yeah. up pretty bad when, you, when you've when you got, because the motor has to be spinning five times as okay. many uh, platters. And then you get uh, issues with reliability. You know, the, the more platters, the more heads you have spinning, the more things are going, um, mm-hmm. the more chance there is for things to go wrong. Right. So, Density helps affect all of that stuff. Plus, performance should increase as well. Anytime you get aerial density in- increasing on a platter-based hard drive, you're going to see performance boosts as well.
0: I am excited. I wait cool. with bated breath for the
1: drives to ship. <laughs> should we thank our friends over at Netflix? We definitely should, everybody. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by Netflix. Netflix delivers movies directly to your home, saves you time, money, and hassle. Gone are the days of having to drive to your local movie rental store. You know what? To be honest with you, I don't even know where a local movie rental store is near my house anymore. If I'm going to be completely honest with you, after all the blockbusters closed, I was I was kind of seven eleven near your house. No, no, we don't have 7-Elevens on that far east. So. It's, that's the, the closest one to me. Well, 7-Elevens are on the east coast too, <laughs> just like the Wawa. No. But, well, they're, um, not, they're yeah. not in the Midwest where I am. <laughs> you can also uh, instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV via netflix Ray device like uh, an Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, even a Nintendo Wii. Uh, plus, you can still get DVDs by mail in about one business day. And Blu-rays as well, if you sign up for that appropriate plan. Watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees and no due dates. That's what makes Netflix so great. Um, Now, if you've never watched The Office, I don't know, Patrick, if you are a fan of The Office. I have occasionally tuned in. Uh, It bears a painful resemblance to one of
0: my previous employers.
1: Yes, and that's why so many (laughs) people love it, I think. Um, the Office is the Emmy-winning sitcom that, as it says here in the description, chronicles the daily foibles of office workers at the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, where deluded boss Michael attempts to shepherd his disgruntled employees as a documentary film crew captures every winsworthy moment. And I think you're right. That is – it speaks to so many people. That's why it's so popular over here. It started as a, as a – show in the UK and they made a US version over here and I remember when it first started it was kind of a risky thing like are people going to like this kind of documentary style comedy that they're that they are creating and it it's 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 won a lot of awards it's done very well (laughs) you can actually get the entire first season plus more streaming directly to your PC Mac or Netflix device. Instantly, all I have to do is go sign up for an account and you can start watching the office right away I always i know i know Leo loves the office because uh lots of times when we do the show he would always say Shroot Ryan Shroot he would always <laughs> um, bring out the similarities of my name to uh, the beet farmer that is on that show as well um, but if you want to instantly watch that show or choose from thousands of TV episodes or other movies when you register for a free trial membership all you have to do is go to netflix.com slash twit T-W-I-T and uh, you can sign up for that or anything else or start using one of the uh, DVD by mail Blu-ray by mail plans uh, it's Netflix Netflix.com slash twit, and we thank Netflix for their support of this week in computer hardware. Thank you, Netflix.
0: Oscar's worried about SSD failure rates thanks to codinghorror.com. He says, Hi, Ryan and Patrick. I recently came across his blog post about the high failure rate of SSD drives. Um, basically, if you go to codinghorror.com, you'll find it. it's the top story up there. I'm wondering, do you guys have similar experiences? Any idea what's causing this? Is SSD drives reliability going to improve in the next few years? Thanks for making a great show. Regards, Oscar. Um, I like the Coding Horror blog. Basically, the, 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 I want to say Jeff Atwood, the guy who writes Coding Horror, uh, two out of the three original uh, uh, solid state drives he bought for uh, employees. Uh, died, uh, crucial 128 gigabyte SSDs mm. he bought in two, October 2009. Uh, as of last month, two out of three of those drives failed. And then he's got a buddy, Portman Wills, um, um, who has purchased eight SSDs over the last two years. All of them failed. A super talent, OCC Vertex, two G-Skills, a crucial and OCC Agility, and two uh, Intel uh, X25Ms. And um, I found that deeply fascinating. I also want to know what the delete expletive he was putting those SSD drives into and what kind of power issues they have in his community. Right. Um, you know, were those all cause it, you know, here's the here's the deal. The 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 reason Intel was able to kind of jumpstart the solid state drive market so quickly. Um, is, you know, one, they wanted to fill excess capacity at FAPS. They wanted to sell more memory. Um, SSDs Mm -hmm. obviously provide a performance jump. It's very exciting. They went to people like Dell and HP and Asus and said, hey, we want to sell you solid-state drives. And they all, you know, grabbed the garlic and the crucifixes and went, no, we will be dealing with terrible, terrible failure rates, and we'll have to deal with, you know... Half of the way computers are built has less to do with maybe you know, providing the maximum performance or the best experience, but minimizing the number of complaints when products fail. Um, which is a gross mm-hmm. oversimplification, but basically minimizing tech support calls is critical. So they said, we want you to deliver this amount of mean time between failure. And Intel went great and threw a number, basically delivered five times that or something as an estimated mean time between failure. Um, um, mm-hmm. I, I've got SSD drives. So you've got SSD drives. Uh, Roger from Techzilla's is SSD drives. There's an SSD drive. My wife's a MacBook Air. I don't yeah. know anybody that's had... Uh, uh, two uh, SSD drives fail, much less eight. So, well, I, I, ap- I appreciate, bad. yeah, part of me appreciates, uh, you know, Jeff, because you know, he starts it off with, as an early advocate of solid-state drives, and he links to the articles, I feel ethically and morally obligated to let you in on a dirty little secret I've discovered in the last two years of full-time SSD ownerships. Solid-state hard drives fail. A lot, Um, and here's the thing: like, on one hand, I admire him by being like, I may have because part of what makes this article so funny is he basically goes into this whole sidebar about the hot versus crazy chart, and (laughs) and because he's basically saying um, um, that, you know, he 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 doesn't care; he just bought like an OCC Vertex (laughs) three. (laughs) <laughs> um yep. but, you know and he's like just make sure you have a good backup plan and make a, make sure you back up regularly. Um you know so on one hand it's it's kind of it's kind of funny cuz he's like yes they fail. We've had them fail. My friend is his eight fail, but I just bought a new one cuz they're so stupid fast. Um so on one hand you know one of the things I admire about coding horror is the dude 's really good at crafting titles and content that is compelling um, uh-huh. yeah as in good SEO and, and good eye gathering and you know there 's nothing you know there's there 's no, you know it 's it's, it's not quite as bad as those two guys who delayed the review of Toy Story three so they could be the two people that didn 't give it like one hundred percent on the tomato meter um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know and I am absolutely not. Denying that he's had fails and other people have had fails and his friends sure. had eight fails, but I'm saying this is circumstantial evidence. Um, right. You know, if if you know everybody, if, you know. Do you, ever, yeah.
1: do you wonder? Do you wonder if the guy who has eight SSDs has some configuration issue or something like that? That has that eight SSDs that have failed on the span of 15 days to 512 days. Yeah, and from one,
0: two, three, four. Five manufacturers, and that 's mm-hmm. what i mean that 's what like and dude i i, I don 't know portman wills uh, i 'm no. sure he 's awesome as a human being, but when I see like you know i i 've been in situations where we 've had hardware from multiple vendors fail due to electrical issues or stuff like that, so when I see eight drives right. from five different you know I want to know what is he doing, <laughs> and not because it 's his fault but because that 's just you know, that is like you know what i mean the the bell curve is you know it 's. Yeah, this guy over here at the bell curve is is, you know, his SSD drive, he's gonna still gonna be using it in like thirty-five years because he's got this server running in a dark corner of a small office. You know, and this guy over here is Portman Wills, who's had eight, you know, drives, you know, die in the last couple of years. You know, most of right. us are gonna be under that big, huge part of the bell curve. Um,
1: I think is- I think one of his one of his points here is that he's still using them, and yeah. he says he uses SSDs as if they're going to die. And I think, <sighs> as we often talk about on the show, you should use all of your storage devices in that way. you know, yes. Hard drives or SSDs. You should always assume that tomorrow your computer's not going to, to turn on, or your hard drive's going to be dead, and you need to have your backup plans in place to take care of that, regardless if you're using an SSD or a spinning disk, right? both have the potential to fail um you know i I, i've sent this article now that you showed it to me over to our storage guy and hopefully he'll be able to make some kind of comments on it as well kind of give his idea nobody that i know has used more solid state drives than he has the idea is how long has he used them over a continual basis too so
0: I was thinking about that, like about Alan and and about uh, Anand over at Anantech, Alan, who's who does the analysis for you guys at PC per. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, something I, I remember telling somebody back when I at one point I had tested like every notebook from every manufacturer, like ever, like the top five right. manufacturer. I'd I'd probably been through 50 notebooks in those two year period. So they've been on every notebook, but at least one example of every major model. And I said to a friend of mine, it's like. You know i can't tell you how well this notebook's going to last in two years i can tell you how well it's going to benchmark you know and this and that right. and the other thing i usually yeah. the, the notebook i carry you know full-time performs but it's you know it's one of the downsides of doing products is more often than not you get a product for a week you get it for a month you get it for six weeks you know and you know my, even if you, you get know, to
1: keep the drive you know, if if we've got 15 drives, we can't put them all on a machine that's going to be used every day to do, like, long-term studies. We just don't have that capability as, you know, the small outfits that we tend to be, so
0: even the big outfits can't you know justify i mean yeah i don't even think consumer yeah. i mean i'm trying to imagine consumer reports like running you know a bunch of ssd drives use because they have to do the exact same things with the exact same parts and relatively exact mm-hmm. same configuration and do it for you know it would be cool if we could test every if it would, actually it would be really cool if we could go into the future and find out which things are going to fail more often but work here is twitch at uh twitch at twit.tv is the email. If if you've been running into a lot of SSD fails or, you know, because we're talking about this on Techzilla too, if you're running into a lot of SSD fails, especially if you're doing corporate IT or if you're you're working for a a computer company and you get a lot of uh, 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 drives coming back, we're really curious to hear about that one. Cool. Speaking of which, uh, Dan from Illinois wrote in, he's got an OCC Vertex 2, gig SSD. He says this drive ran amazingly fast and access times were insane. He's got it in all caps. After about two weeks of running it, my system started locking up whenever I would do something in Photoshop that required the use of the scratch disk. Thinking Photoshop was going nuts, I rebooted and tried again. Same thing, locking up, hesitating, lagging. I tried loading up Firefox, the same thing. Everything on my system is now lagging out horribly. After If you're talking to a friend, you mentioned that I probably bricked the drive because I did not turn off Prefetcher and index of that hard drive since SSDs do not like these functions. What is the general rule of thumb when running an SSD with Windows 7 or XP? I know never defrag, but what else should be disabled, enabled, so my new shiny OCZ drive can run for
1: years to come? Um, It's interesting. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, obviously, he's not... Quote, bricked the drive because um, it's still running and it's still operating the operating system and all that kind of stuff. I don't ever turn off indexing on the hard drive. Indexing is is an important function of Windows 7 uh, in terms of usability and being able to search things. And I have never turned off. Whatever the prefetcher is, I, I don't do any special configurations with Windows Seven at all. I just install Windows Seven, boom, mm-hmm. it handles all the other kind of stuff that it needs to do. So, um, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to say about this. Yeah, I mean, I've I've
0: heard. I think it was Tweak Town who did the article that that they were like, you know, disable index. Uh, disable indexing, enable write caching, um, disable defrag, disable system restore, disable superfetch, disable prefetch. I you know, I, I'm sorry, I probably should have sent this to Alan. because <laughs> um, I was curious about that. Cause I I I just run it normally and it seems to run okay. I'm also not doing gigantic Photoshop files on my scratch disk. So yeah. I'd be curious. Uh I mean, we'll maybe you <laughs> can forward this one to Alan and he can tell us what we should be doing. But I, I thought Agreed. this is another extremely unusual situation. because I, I don't know anybody who's run into quite this situation unless they filled the hard drive uh, and were running into problems. That's true. Uh, without If it's really, trend. really
1: full, you might see something like that.
0: Yeah, that was the thing of, you know, do you have 118 gigabytes of data stuffed onto this drive? Did you actually, <laughs> you know, move your video collection onto the hard drive?
1: Uh, um, let's see, we've got an uh, email from Frank here, wants to know about <laughs> running a Xeon on a P67. He says, hi, I've got a really simple question. Will the new Intel Xeon E3 series work in P67 motherboards? I know you're supposed to only use them in C204 boards, but it would seem that they'd work fine in P67 too, question mark, question mark, question mark, <laughs> uh, that comes from Frank. Um, you know, I, I did a I did a quick search kind of looking around here, and it is the Xeon E3 series is a socket 1155 processor. And I think it will work just fine. In a motherboard, it might report as a different CPU uh, when right. you open up CPU ID or CPU-Z or something like that, but there's no electrical reason why it won't. Um, I will say, though, I'm assuming you just have a Xeon E3 processor that you want to use because they're more expensive than whatever the desktop counterpart is. So I wouldn't recommend going out and buying one. But if you just happen to have one and a P67 motherboard and you're wondering if you can just mash them together and make a computer, I believe the answer is yes.
0: I mean, is there any point other than than a desperate desire to have like six cores and run 12 threads? I mean, is there any advantage? I mean, basically like six core Intel... So, you know, at the high end, there's six cores. Most of them are four cores. Uh, yeah, that's threads. what I'm saying. It, it, the E3 12 is... 12 megs I, of
1: cache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, electrically, I think it will work. I don't, don't be surprised if you boot it up and the BIOS doesn't see it as that kind of processor or mm-hmm. Windows doesn't see it as the right kind of processor. Um, you know, and make sure you're using the latest BIOS just... I think it will work. I, you know, you're not going to... Fr- Let's put it this way. I don't think you're going to fry anything. At the worst case, it won't right. post. What I think will happen is it will report the wrong processor ID and blah, 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 and maybe Windows will be a little confused, but it should run and <laughs> it should use all of the um, resources on that CPU without a problem.
0: Oh, hey, you know what? Um, I just found something I was looking for before uh, from the MSDN, sure. blogs.msdn.com for engineering Windows 7. Um, Where is it? 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 Uh, uh, Windows 7 will disable disk defragmentation on SSD system drives. um, Because SSDs perform extremely well in random read operations, defragmenting files isn't helpful enough to warrant the added disk writing defragmentation produces. By default, Windows 7 will disable superfetch, ready boost, as well as boot and application launch prefetching on SSDs with good random read, random write, and flush performance. These technologies were all designed to improve performance on traditional hard disk drives where random read performance could easily be a major bottleneck. Hmm. And then uh since SSDs tend to perform at their best when the operating system's partitions are created with the SSD's alignment needs in mind, all of the partition creating tools in Windows 7 place newly created partitions with the appropriate alignment. Oh. So uh, you guys sorry, like I like I knew that thing was in there somewhere, but basically Windows seven, um uh if Dan, if you're running Windows seven, it should pretty much do everything it's supposed to do. So I almost would say you might want to try you know, formatting that drive and starting all over again. Yeah, um, a good option. Simon's got a relatively painless question. He says, Hi, Patrick and Ryan. Love the show. Listen every week. Thank you, Ryan. I should say thank you, Simon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, too, Ryan. I enjoy doing this show oh, with you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> he says, I have a desktop PC with an ASUS P5LD2VM slash S motherboard. I currently have two gigabytes DDR2 RAM. I'm looking to upgrade to three or four gigs of RAM. The RAM is currently in two one-gigabyte sticks. I was wondering what would be the best way of upgrading. I'm running uh, Windows 7 32-bit. Will I see a performance increase in the everyday computer going to 4 gigabytes from 2. My free memory in Windows Task Manager says between 300 and 0. So this is a Socket (laughs) 775 uh, motherboard with the Intel 945G -hmm. chipsets, uh, basically Intel Core Duo. My first thought is like, you know, 32-bit Windows 7, you're only going to see 3 gigabytes of RAM. My second thought is, I'm not even sure, will this motherboard even support 4 gigabytes of
1: RAM? Oh, I'm sure it will. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, yeah. It's you know, Windows 7 32-bit will only see 3.2 gigabytes okay. of it, um, but it will it will kind of use the memory anyway. Mm-hmm. My personal opinion on this is memory is really, 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 really cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want the least chance of compatibility issues, buy two two gigabyte sticks of DDR2 memory. Um, put them in there. You, I think you will see a boost going from two to three point two or two to four gigs of memory, um, regardless. And two gigs of memory just seems really low these days. I think for right. you know for modern what people are doing, even online and all the flash stuff that goes on and that kind of thing, four gigs I think would be an advantage there.
0: I, I also want to add that I would I would also say. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> if you can upgrade to 64-bit version of Windows 7, so sure. you can see all four gigabytes uh, in a full native configuration. Or if you're, and,
1: how many gigabytes will that motherboard handle? Will uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. It would, I mean, it would at least be eight um second 775 is is probably eight gigs or something like that or maybe a little bit more also don't be surprised when you when you put in more memory if you're doing the same Mm -hmm. stuff and task manager still says you only have 300 to zero megs free windows 7 uses all of your memory regardless of what you know you're doing windows 7 will fill up your memory as much as possible that doesn't mean you know, it might have stuff in memory for an application you closed that when you start to open a new app, it will clear that out and refill it with different things. But, you know, even on systems we've got that have 12 gigs of memory, a lot of times it will show less than a gig free the majority right. of the time, even when it's not doing much.
0: Okay, that motherboard supports 4 gigabytes max. Would you would you say mm-hmm. add two more 1-gigabyte sticks or, or just upgrade <laughs> to two 2-gigabyte sticks?
1: I, I would say two 2-gigabyte two sticks because... Mm-hmm. You know, older the older platforms have have a little bit more issue with compatibility between memory Mm -hmm. modules. And so you're just you're gonna avoid complication if you get two two gigabyte sticks. And I don't think it's gonna be that much more expensive than getting two one gigabyte sticks anymore. I mean it will be more expensive, but I don't think it's gonna be any more than like forty bucks or something like that, maybe. Just kinda get it in the air. So Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'd also say don't worry too much about like looking for qualified memory as listed on the Asus uh, uh, website or anything like that. Basically, you know, uh, I prefer branded memory. I buy a lot of crucial memory. Um, They've done pretty well by me over the years. But basically, you know, you're looking for DDR2-667. If you find something faster than that, it should still run in the sockets. But don't kill yourself trying to find like the ultimate Mushkin memory or, or, you know, some obscure, you know, branded memory you'd never heard of because it's listed in the like the you know the vetted memory section of the the uh, uh website the manufacturer website for this um because we tend to get really uptight about memory and you know i need to reduce my cash latency and step back <laughs> indeed zad Giel tweets at patrick norton how does one store nas drives in their home the fans are starting to get loud I want to warn everybody right now as we head into the hot summer season. It's been like 75 degrees here in San Francisco, um, which sounds, you know, like, oh, it's 75 degrees, but very few buildings in San Francisco that are, that have, you know, are, are, are much older than, you know, basically every older building in San Francisco, A, doesn't have AC and B, uh, oftentimes mm. doesn't have fans. So if it gets up to over 80 degrees, like in if it's 80 degrees outside, it's usually 100 inside of our office building here at vision 3, <laughs> which makes recording Techzilla in the studio super fun under the lights. <laughs> Um, but because essentially because, you know, it's it's usually like 58 to 65 here. So if it actually gets hot, everything mm. falls apart. I bring that up for the rest of the contiguous United States uh, where it actually gets genuinely hot. And if it's 95 degrees outside, um, chances are it's, you know, 62 degrees inside most of your home. And it's still 95 or 125 degrees in your closets because there's no AC venting in your closets. Um be very careful about taking expensive computers or expensive NAS boxes and stuffing them in a closet because when the closet door is closed, you can't hear them. If you do decide to do this, figure out a way to ventilate your closet at the very least. Passively ventilate it by putting in a, a you know a vent at the top of it or something. Because um, there's nothing sadder than getting an email from like, yeah, I got up to like 118 degrees in my house <laughs> and, and my computer, you know, my, my home server crashed and took out my entire Blu-ray collection. Um, so I will say, okay. um, Try to store your NAS drives, uh, you know, if if you're in a part of the world where basements don't flood, I highly recommend putting them in the basement and then connecting them to your Ethernet network. Um, You know, if, you know what I mean, just you want to get them out of the living room and out of the office, even the quiet ones, uh, you know, especially if you're the kind of, you know, woman or guy that likes to type at 4 a.m. when the rest of the family is asleep, you know. 42 decibels, you know, I can't hear a 42 decibel device when my son is awake, but at four in the morning, like, 22-decibel devices sound sound like fire horns, uh, whatever a fire <laughs> horn is. I think fire siren is what I was thinking of. So, uh, you know... To sort of encapsulate this before I sort of wander on, one, uh, put them away from the places where you normally work. Two, put them in mm-hmm. places where they're you know, not going to fall off or fall down if you have children or earthquakes. If, if you're an earthquake country and you put them on a bookshelf, strap it down to the bookshelf, make sure the bookshelf is secured to the wall. If your basement doesn't flood, I highly recommend basements. You plug the NAS into a UPS device. You know that does that 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 is, or at the very least, a a surge protector, um, Mm -hmm. and attach it to the uh, gigabit Ethernet network in your home. you know, if if you have issues with huge temperature changes or a lack of cooling, I would, you know, basically if your garage gets up to 120 degrees in the summer because there's no AC and there's no uh, uh, ventilation in there, I would hesitate before putting my expensive data mm-hmm. in my expensive NAS drive in the garage where it gets up to 120 degrees. Um, mm-hmm. Am I missing anything? <laughs> the- um, get
1: quieter fans? I don't yeah, know. that's, that's
0: yeah, an option kind too. Of- that, that is definitely, or see if there's an option for turning down the, the speed on the fans inside the NAS box. Because um, yeah. the problem is, you know, hard drives generate heat, especially when you're accessing them. And it, it would suck to minimize the noise and corrupt your data <laughs> or kill a drive. That just always yeah, sucks.
1: Don't, don't kill that. Um, let's see. Kyle uh, has an interesting question here. He asks, I currently have my monitor on top of my desk in front of an open window. Since it's the only window in my room, I like to have it open all the time. Am I doing any damage to the monitor short or long term by having the window open all of the time? I close it when it rains, of course, and I live in the Twin Cities, and it doesn't really get humid here. It's um, kind of an interesting question. Uh, obviously, closing it when it rains is very important. Water and uh, large lcd monitors probably don't work out well um i don't i can't think of anything if if, if it's not super humid um mm-hmm. you know a, air control or or uh, hvac systems and quality or you know, control of the air environment is always a little bit better but i can't imagine you know the sunlight doing anything other than maybe bleaching the paint on the back of the of the monitor or something like <laughs> that maybe making it a yeah. little bit hotter
0: than if, it would normally you- be if you're in you know thunderstorm territory um, and you're not home all the time, close the window before you leave the house. Um, I, I, I think of this because of incidents when I was younger and living in Pennsylvania, or you know, or Florida actually. You know, there's like it seems like like you know Kissimmee, Florida. I think is what 3:30 every afternoon for several months a year. You get a regular thunderstorm. Um, <laughs> You know, I when I lived near the ocean in in San Francisco, I was living three four blocks off the ocean, and there was this very wet, heavy uh, fog. And anything that was stored in an area where we didn't have pretty good heat and and kept the windows closed had unbelievable amounts of salt incrustation inside the boxes. Like all basically anything I had in my garage got trashed. But yeah, a window—if you you know—shut the window when you leave. Um, you know, uh, I, I my my thought was, like, doesn't the monitor block the nice flow of fresh air?
1: <laughs> <laughs> true, true.
0: Uh, you know, brother, that, that was my primary concern. You know, if you're near an ocean, you it's have issues. It's also probably not
1: good for viewing it, right? I mean, you've got – if the sunlight's coming right in and your screen's right here. It tends to know, be a I mean-
0: little – well, actually, that's that's not entirely true because, like, if you're if you're configuring a home theater and you have a, a decent LED, one of the reasons they started playing around there, there's this whole s- system of you can kind of hack it yourself by basically putting some LED lamps behind your your home theater uh, your your HDTV hmm. so that you create sort of a a light halo of light around the screen because going from a black room to a bright screen kind of makes your eyeballs explode out of your head. Um, yeah, that's true, but uh, yeah, you know, plastic might fade, you know, uh, yeah, thunderstorms yeah, if the window's not shut. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, kids throwing baseballs through the window. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> people, is it on the first floor? Is somebody going to see your nice monitor there and, and, and you know, reach Link. through your window and steal it? Um, you know, I think you're fine leaving it there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's – that's pretty much everything i can think of um yep. do we have time for one more question or should we sure let sure. let's, let's, was, let's a, do uh let's do crash plan this was interesting uh uh daniel uh daniel wrote in from ireland whoops actually i'm, I'm looking at the wrong question in there i think i just managed to uh skip forward so uh uh, yeah, it is Daniel in Ireland. Sorry, It's Dennis in Ireland says a few weeks ago probably more you, you mentioned the size of storage you guys have and the problems backing up all the data to the cloud due to either the speed of the uploads. Be thankful for what you have. He says in Ireland we are still in the stone age on broadband speeds or maxing out your monthly upload usage caps on whatever providers you use. Obviously Carbonite got the most limelight. Hey, Carbonite's a sponsor and I've been using them on and off for years. But did you mention you did mention CrashPan briefly. So as Carbonite is not available to us in Ireland, I had a look at CrashPlan and it is excellent so far. The reason he's emailing, though, is because of CrashPlan's seeded backup service. They send you a hard drive, you back up everything onto the drive, send it back to them, and when they connect it to your account, your online backup picks up where you left off with the drive. I haven't it's tried this cool. part of the service, as I'm not sure it's available outside of the USA, but it certainly sounds good, he says. Also, the free version of CrashPlan doesn't let you back up to the cloud, but it does let you back up to computers at other locations. Uh, it also lets you do the same seated backup. So you can take your own personal backup drive to another location, your office, your parents, your trusted friend, install CrashPlan, connect to your account, and it picks up where you left off. So far, I love it, says Dennis P. We had been struggling to find a nice backup method for the home with Mac and PCs and small offices, so thanks for mentioning them. So, yeah, hey, you know what? If you're outside of the U.S. and you can't get Carbonite, by all means, check out CrashPlan. I wonder if they'll send me one of those new Seagate
1: 5-terabyte drives that I want to to see things. The peer-to-peer option sounds pretty cool, right? I mean, if you've got a home and an office, you know, that are separated by a good amount just bring a hard drive back and forth, swap it once and have them back and forth to each other. That sounds like a pretty good idea to me.
0: It was funny. One of the questions we answered on TechSilla this week, this guy uh, has the most out-of-control um, NAS situation I've ever heard of. The short version is he's got like 16 2-terabyte drives and various RAID configurations with, I'm guessing, about 12 terabytes of data on them, um, And his RAID card is dying, and he needs to move to a new RAID card. <laughs> I was like, he's like, how do that's I do a, this without
1: situation?
0: I'm like, you're going to be buying some new hard drives.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, that's rough. Do you know anybody with eight terabyte NAS you can borrow for a few days? <laughs> you know, maybe a week, because it's also you know when you're talking about moving terabytes and terabytes of data, often just moving them from one, one, uh, one NAS to another can take days and days to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you want to do Daniel's SSD question, or Reese and IPv6?
1: That's yeah. Let's do let's do Reese. Riz, Reese, something. Uh, he wants to talk about IPv6 and how it will affect him. I'm an Australian subscriber to your podcast, and thirdly, enjoy the show. Great job, fellas. I have a mixed hardware-software question regarding the eventual switchover to IPv6. Is this likely to affect us consumers in the future? What types of hardware would be affected? I assume only Internet-facing machines, i.e. servers and routers and the like, rather than internal machines. Uh, are going to be affected. Will IPv6 devices be able to talk to IPv4 devices or is it more like a supernet, therefore another logical internet? Um, I think your kind of assumption of only internet-facing machines need to worry about this if, if, for instance, if in your home your router's IPv6 ready, that's usually, not always, but usually the only machine on your network that has an Actual external IP address. Everything else is using like a 192.168 blah 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 IP address, and those can stay IPv4 internally uh, on your home network for as long as you want, right? You're not going to run out of IP addresses in that range in your own internal network. Um, So I think it's really, really, I think I think it is servers and and internet-facing machines, your router, something like that, is really the only thing that's going to be a potential issue. Unless,
0: yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I've I uh, I've been assiduously avoiding researching how Comcast plans to deal with IPv (laughs) six.
1: Cable modems are going to have to be upgraded, I think, in a lot of cases. um, That type of thing. So that's I mean that really falls on to Comcast and your local cable company or DSL provider to to try to figure out what's going to happen with that. Hey, look at that.
0: There is a comcast ipv6 information center there you go wow this site is intended to provide the latest information about comcast ipv6 related work we are conducting several ipv6 technical trials in our production network with customers in order to prepare for the transition so they participated in uh,
1: world ipv6 day Six um, R mean, D activation. is planned. Most modern routers claim support for IPv6, so I, I, I think yeah. I think most people will be okay. Now, there's always the possibility of well, they had IPv6 support, but they really couldn't test it on much. So, you know, we're right. just going to say it and throw it out there and see what see what sticks. So, you know, th- there will be headaches, I'm sure, just like the analog to digital TV transition, right? But hopefully, it won't be that bad. <laughs>
0: It's interesting, like, they said they did their first IPv6 native dual stack over DOCSIS. Basically, the DOCSIS 3.0, that's the the cable modem standards. Uh, uh, And they set it up so users, quote, can now access content and services natively over both IPv6 and IPv4. So they didn't Mm -hmm. have to do any uh, tunneling, translating, or NAT. They can access IPv6 and IPv4 directly at high speed in an unencumbered fashion. Uh, cool. quote, this is a tremendous milestone for Comcast, cable operators, and the internet community at large. So that's actually that's- really cool in terms of, you know, making IPv6 function in the home. It's gonna be really I mm-hmm. mean, it's 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 kind of funny because people have been moving towards IPv6 for ever uh the government the federal like the u.s federal government uh made ipv6 compatibility a standard for all the routers and, and computer hardware they were purchasing years and years ago um specifically so that any new equipment they bought would be ready for the ipv6 transition um you know i, I think it's going to be interesting to see what you know when people eventually flip the switch what routers are or are not impacted uh and the other thing is you know Correct me if I'm wrong, but they can pretty much leave IPv4 running as long as possible, as long as they own the IP addresses on that network. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, it's you know the, the whole point of of, of creating uh, IPv6 was to deal with the fact that they're running out of IPv4 addresses. Um, so I think it's going to be uh, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see if it, you know, I think it's going to impact large web providers and hosts and uh, ISPs a lot more than it's going to impact end users. Because, again, this goes back to the thing I was talking about, you know, with with, uh, with SSDs being provided by big computer companies is Comcast doesn't want to get 24, you know, 24 million or 27 million or however many subscribers they have now calling up uh, because IPv6 broke <laughs> their connection to the Internet. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see how this is implemented nice. and how long it takes to roll out. Um, I, I normally, you know, talk a lot of flack about Comcast, but generally speaking, my internet doesn't break and it runs fast.
1: So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty much
0: all I can ask for out of an internet yeah. provider. Yep. So, will you be back in uh, Ohio next week, or are we going to get another little call from an exotic but yes. and new Kentucky, oh, Kentucky, Kentucky bit? Yes.
1: Are you? Is it the derby this weekend or next weekend? It is the Saturday, actually, and we found a local bar here in the islands that is having a derby party on Saturday, actually, which is kind of funny. <laughs>
0: Nothing says the Virgin Islands like
1: a mint julep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and big hats for the women. Oh, oh man. It's crazy. Yeah, it'll be fun. I think we're going to call...
0: Uh... Draw the line in the sand. Call that the end of this week, in computer hardware. Twitch at twit.tv is the email. We love your questions. We need your questions. We want to hear. And, and mm-hmm. again, we asked earlier, if you're running into SSD failure rates that are higher than you expected, tell us about it. If you see some news, it excites you. Tell us about it. If you got a computer question, a hardware question, tell us about it. Um, in fact, we should probably talk about uh, the 4G stuff we were looking at. Verizon 4G, LTE, very fast, mm-hmm. very fast. Very fast,
1: shocking Not here. here. Not here. here. I have a modem, but it's not here. Imagine that. No four G <laughs> in the Virgin Islands.
0: There's no four. 4- I could drive eight miles east of my house and probably <laughs> run out of four G coverage. Yeah. And that's the problem with four G is it's not everywhere. With that bright and yep. cheerful note, I'm Patrick Norton. <laughs> I'm Ryan. We'll see you next week on Twitch.